George pulled me into the room with Steve Jobs as they were screaming at each other about whether Steve would wear a suit or his Apple t-shirt. And uh, I can tell you after an hour, actually, George Chris won that, you know. Really? Yes, he went, which is amazing, right? It's probably the first concession and only one that Steve Jobs ever made. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Annie Lamont is an important figure in venture capital. She's an important figure in something else, much to my surprise. I'll get to that later in the podcast, but here's a quick excerpt. The person who introduced you and me <laughs> did not mention this to me. And no, it, you know what? It took a while. The Google on it, you know, I mean, you are such an you're such a good investor and you're and you've done so well as an investor that it doesn't pop up immediately. I promise we'll get to that later. Annie Lamont is co-founder of Oak FTHC, and I wanted to get her take on what she thought was ahead for 2022. I was trying to figure out how to explain who Lamont is when I came across this old clipping in the New York Times. Lamont, they write, is one of the most successful women in the ever lofty realm of venture capital. I think I'm going to start calling it the ever lofty realm of venture capital from here on out. <laughs> I love that moniker too. <laughs> so secondly, secondly, what do you think of, of what they said? What do I think? Well, you know, it was interesting. That was 15 years ago. I think they read that. Um, and I guess what I would say is I never really liked the qualification of uh, women venture capitalists. I guess I'd like to. Right. You are one of the most successful people in venture capital. Forbes, had, Forbes put you in the top 50. Venture, uh, National Venture Capital Association says you're one of the top investors in healthcare ever. Well, thank you. So I will let other people say that, but I, you know, but I did. I, I think at this point, having the qualification, given how many women, and especially 15 years ago, were actually in venture capital industry, I didn't feel that it was actually a, a great shout out. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about 2022, uh, 2021, a banner year in, yeah. in funds invested but also funds raised uh, a lot of money in venture capital in 2021, big funds making big rounds. What do you think is ahead? Well, you're right. We've raised an extraordinary amount of capital as an industry globally. Um, and, you know, people have to put it to work, but I do believe that 2022, the pace will slow down. And why um, is that? And I think it's because there is, a, well, first of all, look at the public markets. And usually there's a lag of six to nine months between what happens in the private markets and the public markets. And I'm, you know, I'm sure, look, the first quarter may be more positive in terms of uh, the public markets correcting. 
But I think you've got, you're in this period where people are separating the wheat from the chaff and they're trying to figure out what's great and what's not. And there will be, and right now they're just funding everything at high prices, right? And in venture and all the way from early seed to late stage growth. Um, and I do think there will be separation and more uh, a more discerning investor uh, out there um, as particularly- but what, but what causes that? What causes, well, because there's so it. many things to laugh at out there these days. Right, I mean, no, it's, it's incredible. I, but what, what makes us get more that, serious? Well, you know, when I shall we name, you know, the Kotus and Tigers and others, you know, that are in the public markets as well as the later stage and now earlier stage privates, you know, when 75% of IPOs are underwater yes. uh, and, you know, and stock portfolios have gone down, then people are a little less bullish about what's happening in the private market. And they shouldn't be less bullish from the quality, from the tailwinds, the quality of the entrepreneurs and the companies and what's going on, but you know, valuations have certainly peaked. I, I think I think you could call the fourth quarter perhaps a peak in the market. So, so sobriety is is an is a natural just outcome of of twenty twenty one in twenty twenty two because people did get burned. Uh, then then they're going to look more carefully. I think they will look more carefully. I do still think the great companies will still command tremendous valuations, um, particularly, I mean, if you look at global opportunities in fintech, I mean, there will be companies created now that have 20 to $100 billion market caps in the future. There will be great healthcare companies created. Um, so I think that, you're, you know, ca- capital will flow to those opportunities. Um, but, it, you know, that does reduce returns for everybody in these great companies. Uh, the name of your firm, Oak HCFT, that's going to be healthcare and fintech, right? Those are your two yeah. areas of focus. Uh, is it is it because there's so much ahead that is so untapped, or because the returns are so good, or all of the above? Well, we chose these two areas really twenty plus years ago, um, and there were two highly regulated areas that you really needed to under, deeply understand to not get burned. Uh, and we felt like uh, healthcare needed, uh, there was incredible opportunity. It's 20% of the economy. Payment and fintech, you could say, touches everything. Uh, and there were very few players in 2002 when we started doing uh, fintech before we created HCFT even. Um, there were very few players in it. So it was an incredible time to establish a position, knowledge, uh, and then build a team over the last seventy years. The tailwinds, you know, have arrived in both of these sectors, um, and it's incredible to see the inflection point of in, in not just investing, but really growth of these companies and demand for their services. As as you know, any shop now is interested in healthcare and, and fintech. I'm guessing you think your experience gives you quite a leg up. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I think if you talk to our entrepreneurs, we are incredibly helpful and supportive of our entrepreneurs. Um, and I think just, we have so many repeat entrepreneurs, probably about 30% of what we do is just repeat entrepreneurs that we've backed before, you know, that keep coming back to us. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the, our ability to uh, connect them, not only with customers, but we, you know, we have five people that are dedicated to healthcare in FinTech in talent. And so talent alone, like we spend every day just talking to people who understand both of these sectors. Um, and it's, uh, I think, any, I, the best testimonial will come from our entrepreneurs. I saw that statistic that roughly one third of your investments are, are repeat entrepreneurs. 
Uh, because that makes sense. If you know that they're successful, that they do well, that they're a good team, why wouldn't you? Uh, but the the flip side of that would be what we call pattern matching, right? That okay. you you invest in what you know. Now, to be fair, that also means that two-thirds of your investments are not pattern matching. That is true, at least people-wise. But there's pattern matching in terms of the type of entrepreneur, the business model, you know, the knowledge of the, the individual areas and the sectors. One of the things with, uh, with healthcare in particular are Google and Amazon being very, very interested in it. Uh, and you had said that you think that Google and Amazon coming into the healthcare industry is generally good. Why is that? Oh, I think it would be it's great um, because I, do, I think they have different skill sets than than entrepreneurs, and they have different resources. They can invest in different things that aren't necessarily, you know, available to entrepreneurs. Now, do I think you know Google hasn't really made an impact in healthcare? To tell you the truth, I don't even I don't they don't even know how to play. Yeah, uh, you know they're trying to play. They can play in the life sciences side because they have great resources there and a huge amount of you know dollars to put behind things. Um, but I and I think Amazon, what they're leveraging their strengths in terms of distribution. But there's so many areas in healthcare that they won't be able to do that with. Or I do not worry about any of the tech companies uh, in terms of competition for our entrepreneurs. I want to circle back to a question I had missed when we were talking about predicting 2022. As we look ahead to 2022, can you throw out any sort of, you know, black swan sort of disruptions that might worry you? If we were doing this in 2019, we sure yeah. not would not have guessed global pandemic. Right. Uh, well, some some people actually did. But are there things that on your, though they wouldn't be on your radar because it's a black swan, but, but something that would really throw off what you're trying to do? Well, I think, you know, there's small things that, be, that become big things like uh, CMS. Uh, saying that they're not going to reimburse telehealth in the same way they do in person. That would dramatically change many of the models and the progress that's been made. I think particularly you think about virtualization and treat people at home. And um, so that would be a negative. And then obviously in crypto, you know, we're all waiting, you know, we're waiting in blockchain and crypto and, you know, to what the regulations are going to be. Uh, and I'm not overly worried. I mean, I think right now they're probably going to be judicious um, and hopefully smart about how they do this. Um, but if they, I, you know, and I think what would happen if they dramatically, you know, if they really shut things down or they said, you know, uh, stable coin couldn't be a thing, um, that, that people would just move offshore. So they're just, they would just push innovation off the, you know, out of the United States and we'd probably just be doing more investing offshore. Is there an advantage to working in industries like healthcare and fintech that are, that are so highly regulated? I well, mean, I beyond think, the returns, yeah. but the fact well, yeah. that they are regulated. Yeah, I, well, no, I think they're because there is probably the the guidelines are more uh, are better understood. I think it's a competitive advantage because we understand the regulatory environment and the regulators so well. So I feel like we've got pretty good insight into what they will and won't be doing. Uh, which I think is helpful if you're going to play in these areas. Um, and I, you know, and I think, I mean, when people first started coming into healthcare, you know, they were, you know, this sang in Silicon Valley, right? You ask forgiveness as opposed to permission. And we're very much in the, we're going to ask for permission before, you know. That is lot. such an extraordinary, you think of maybe Uber as being the opposite of that, that, that yeah. we'll, we'll break yeah. the rules and create yeah. the industry and, and government will come, come around eventually. And in healthcare, no, you you don't do. No, that. you're dealing with people's lives, so there's actually a reason that there's a regulatory environment that matters. <laughs> One of the 
driving reasons that I could, uh, was excited about investing in healthcare was that um, I actually had to drop out of Stanford my junior year because uh, my mother called me, my father was ill, he was um, running his own business, and if he didn't work, he didn't make money, uh, and we didn't have any health insurance. Um, and he didn't have any health insurance. So I had to go back to Wisconsin. Um, I worked for a quarter. Uh, I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison for a summer to make up credits. Uh, and then miraculously, uh, they were able to send me back to Stanford in the in the fall. But it was a hell of a lesson to me. Um, and I, I mean, I found out later my dad cashed in his life insurance in order to, you know, put me back in school. And, you know, so it, there are two things really resonated. One, the cost of education, obviously where we're at, and the cost of healthcare and accessibility. And, you know, so I, I really, in 2000, I just said, after doing a lot of biotech investing, I just want to focus on lowering costs and improving quality and access in healthcare. It's just a, it's a real passion of mine and uh, very, very personal to me. It is certainly one of the biggest challenges, no matter where you land on the political spectrum. Uh, one of the biggest challenges is, is, you know, healthcare for all at a reasonable price, which is not a crazy thing to ask for. It's not a crazy thing to ask for. No, it isn't. <laughs> You know, and I and and it's sort of like you know the government is actually providing subsidies right now, and so exchanges are less expensive. But the reality is that doesn't mean the cost of healthcare is lower. That just means consumers are paying less. It's great that consumers are paying less, but we have you know we really need to move the dial in lowering the ultimate cost of healthcare. Um, and it is the exciting part about what's happened with COVID in the in that. Um, moving to more virtualization, moving people out of institutions, out of nursing homes, having more things done at home versus in the hospital or in clinics, you know, you're just, you are automatically going to lower the cost of care. Do you feel that Washington is coming along? I know here in Silicon Valley, we sometimes point and giggle at the Senate hearings where the Senator doesn't quite understand what, you know, instant messaging is or, or whatnot. But do you think Washington in general, and I realize there's you know, an administration side with with FDA, and then there's Congress and whatnot. But in general, do you think U.S. government is beginning to understand how how exciting some of this healthcare could be ahead? I think that as a topic, um, nobody want nobody actually wants to touch healthcare right now. So I actually don't think there'll be much reform or innovation. I just I just hope that the administration doesn't get in the way of what's already happening, right? And supports virtualization and supports some of the programs that have begun. I do think that um, uh, you know the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare. I mean, I think that had a big impact on Biden, and I think he really he has so many other issues to deal with. I. I just think healthcare is is you know like not on on the list of priorities. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com/metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at SCS. 
www.georgetown.edu slash podcast. How'd you get your start in venture capital? When I got out of Stanford, it was an incredible moment in Silicon Valley. And it was really the beginning of the explosion. Um, and through a friend, I was introduced to a investment bank, a boutique investment bank that also did venture. Um, and in my first three months there, we took Apple Public. I carried Steve Jobs' bag on the Apple IPO Roadshow. Um, and we took Genentech Public. So that's how I really got introduced that's to that. That's a very, damn good start to the venture. It was an amazing start. I, I just, you know, I couldn't believe these entrepreneurs. I was absolutely mesmerized and excited about working with them. And I, you know, literally like six months into my work life, I said, I, I want to be a venture capitalist. I could imagine nothing more exciting for the rest of my life to just be working with the, with entrepreneurs. So I, uh, a year and a half in, I told everybody I knew, uh, this is what I wanted to do. And luckily one of those people talked to, uh, the original Oak, uh, founder and, um, and he hired me and, Rest is history. I moved to Westport, Connecticut, met my husband, and it uh, was just karma. <laughs> so when you say you carried uh, Steve Jobs' bags, this is not this is not a, a metaphor for something. No, no. You physically no. carried his bags. I, physically, I did. I carried, like, the handheld written presentations, you know. Right, on the, on the Apple Roadshow. Just give me a taste I, of what Apple that was Road like. Show. Yeah, you know, I'm 22 years of age. and Steve um, Jobs is wearing a suit. No, well, yeah, you know, he's wearing a suit, but that was actually my most interesting moment with, with um, on the whole roadshow was with George Quist, the other founder, Hamburg and Quist. George pulled me into the room with Steve Jobs as they were screaming at each other about whether Steve would wear a suit or his Apple T-shirt. And uh, I can tell you, after an hour, actually, George Quist won that. You know, really. Argument. Yes, he went, which is amazing, right? It's probably the first concession and only one that Steve Jobs ever made. Um, but it is funny, right? Because you would actually see Steve in a suit, you know, from then on, and then you saw obviously his black outfit. Um, but it was a, it was fast. It was like you know, it was amazing to see the the intensity of Steve Jobs. That you know, he was only a year and a half older than I was. It was it was a, a wake up call. I, I met him in the late 90s uh, when he had just come back to Apple Computer. Uh, and you knew that he was smart and you knew that that he you definitely knew he was intense. Um, but even at that time, you know, Apple was not a very valuable company. People were thinking about breaking it up, for goodness sakes. <laughs> we had no idea it would be the most valuable company in the world. Uh, or, or the the you know, the iPhone had was not even a glint in his eye at that point. What did you sense about the two of them and the company back then, other than just intensity? Did did you know that hey, someday this is going to be the most power, uh, most valuable company in the world? I think he still stands as the most impressive entrepreneur I'd ever met, and I think the the is it is the passion, the intensity, the conviction. He had um, just in the vision, right? I mean, it's just he—he he was painting a vision then that was maybe not iPhone apps, but but similar. Like, just he was going to move the world, uh, and he just—he needed to grow up as a manager, you know. And he ended up doing that and understanding his strengths and weaknesses, you know, over the next decade, which um, you know was incredible when he returned to Apple to 
to create what he did. And I, I keep wondering as I, you know, try, I use Apple TV, like, what would that look like? What would it look like today if Steve Jobs were still around? I mean, it's pretty great, but it, it, it would be better, right? It would be better. No question. Uh, so, you know, I was I was laughing when you said, you know, when I got into venture capital and my first two companies that I dealt with were, were Apple and Genentech. <laughs> um, it, you got into venture capital at a time when women were very rare in venture capital. Uh, what have you learned or what advice do you give young women these days? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As it is, a, you know, obviously much more common these days. Uh, but But what sort of wisdom do you pass down? Well, it did take 30 years, but I do feel like, I feel like, I, you know, one thing that's happening is that women are much more aware of the industry. So they're coming into it early. You know, as we recruit people, I mean, it was just not on their minds even a decade ago. And now pe- women do see it as a career path. Um, and, you know, one thing I do say is you don't have to, you don't have to have a female mentor. Um, you just have to, for me, I just, I took pieces of people I respected you know, and, and, and modeled off of, you know, different characteristics of different people. And so I think, you know, that's the thing you do is you different, you find different mentors, but you really just incorporate those things that you respect in the people around you, um, to, you know, really, and, and then obviously put your own take on it. Um, and, you know, and that's really how you build a career and, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, create, um, your own path. Normally, I would not care at all what a woman's husband did for a living. <laughs> but the fact that the person who introduced you and me did not mention this to me. And no, it, you know what? It took a while. The Google on it, you know, I mean, you are such an, you're such a good investor and, you're, and you've done so well as an investor that it doesn't pop up immediately, you know, what your husband does for a living. Uh, after all, you are one of the most venture, uh, what is it, successful women in the ever lofty realm of venture capital. Uh, but in this case, I do want to ask about your second job. Yeah. You're the first lady of Connecticut. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never talked to a first lady of a state before, <laughs> I don't think. Um, what we're, is that? We're a rare breed. Yeah. Well, there are only fifty of you. I well, no, yes. no, no, less than fifty because we've got women governors, a, a, a first that, spouse. Point. Yes, yes, yes. I've never talked to a first spouse before. Um, is that something that that consumes a lot of time, or is it? Does it come up? Is it relevant? I mean, like I said, I, most people, uh, you shouldn't care what the what the spouse does for a living, right. but in this case, it's sort of interesting. Well, I mean, I think what's beautiful about it, I was a political science major at Stanford, uh, so I do have an interest in the topic, and we, I think it's one of the reasons Ned and I uh, were attracted to each other is that we, you know, love, talk, you know, the issues. But I think he's found his calling, and I found mine. And I think that the great thing about uh, the first lady position in Connecticut, or the first spouse, is that nothing really is expected of you, um, hmm. and so you can make it what you want to you want it to be. Um, and, you know, in, in our case, we, we too, we have very full lives and he runs the state and I run a firm. Um, and, I, you know, and I, I think that when we talk about healthcare issues, you know, when there are things that I can help him with, absolutely. You know, I, I'm happy to give my opinion. Um, well, but, and yeah. ca- ca- healthcare in Connecticut, actually, I jotted this down. 
Connecticut consistently rates at the top or near the top on vaccinations and uh, lows in hospitalizations and deaths. Obviously, these numbers move back and forth a lot. But is it is it something that your state has done properly? Is it the the type of person who lives in Connecticut? What is the, the well, I mean, the size, obviously. Yeah, very, no, uh, no, I, I you think know. you're you're hitting on all, all good points. I think I think there are a couple of things. I think that um, we do have a highly educated population. And I think we have a not particularly polarized population. So I think that's helpful. I also think my husband has helped that uh, in the sense that he has tried to, through common sense, you know, deliver messages, um, not overly mandate, um, and simply, you know, govern through um, common through common sense. Uh, and I and I do think it's it's interesting. Um, we have a fabulous <laughs> chief operating officer of the state who did happen to be one of my CEOs of one of my companies um, in Connecticut, and we recruited him. You know, the very first days. And I, it's one thing I love about. What we've done is it's a wonderful, you know, what he's done in his administration is a mix of people who understand government and there, but we've got a former Goldman Sachs partner running economic development. We have a former entrepreneur who was at IBM before that running information and being the COO of the state. And since he knew healthcare, it was extremely, it was great to have his support in literally driving um, testing sites and then vaccinations. And so... Uh, you know, I think they've done a a, a great job uh, in terms of you know making things available, uh, operationally running things well. Uh, I think my husband's communicated uh, well. People seem to like the way he's done it. Um, I do, uh, <laughs> but um, but and I and I do think we have like an unbelievably great population that is pulled together. And like some states have been very you know, like divisive and lots, and this is now. I mean, I think people are really, they're all in and they're really proud of Connecticut. You know, they're proud of the fact we really, we do have the highest vaccination rate. You know, they're proud of the fact that we've, we've handled it well and, uh, and smartly and not just we being the, you know, meaning the governor's administration, meaning the citizens of Connecticut. Annie Lamont, co-founder and managing partner at Oak HCFT. Next week on Sand Hill Road, Nicole Quinn of Lightspeed Venture Partners. Somebody told me you are the fastest English woman alive. <laughs> Did Jeremy Lou tell you that? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.